First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. have your Bibles today, and I hope you do, and you turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 10, and as we continue to walk together through this story of the book of Samuel, we're in a part of the story right now where God is uh, letting his people have it their way. Now, they wanted so badly to have a, a human king like all the nations that were around them, and so God had already warned them that it was not going to turn out well, but they still demanded a king. And so basically he says to them, okay, have it your way. And he gives them the king that they wanted. And last week, if you were able to be with us, we met their first king, a man named Saul. And physically he looked the part of a king. He was head and shoulders taller than everybody else in Israel. He was the handsomest man around. Uh, he just looked like a natural-born leader. And God had told his prophet Samuel that Saul was going to be the king, and so Samuel anointed him with oil in a, a little private anointing service. But at this point in the story, nobody else knows about it. Nobody else knows that Saul is going to be the king. Only three people know about it, only Saul and Samuel and, and of course, God. Uh, but now, in the passage that we're about to read, it's, it's about to become Facebook official. Uh, it, it's about to be uh, tweeted out. It's going to be hashtag Saul is king. And everybody is about to know about it. Let's read the story together. 1 Samuel 10, uh, starting in verse 17. The Word of God says, Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mitzpah and said to the children of Israel, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt and delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all kingdoms and from those who oppressed you. But you have today rejected your God, who himself saved you from all your adversities and your tribulations. And you have said to him, no, set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourself before the Lord by your tribes and by your clans. And when Samuel had caused all the tribes of Israel to come near, the tribe of Benjamin was chosen. And when he had caused the tribe of Benjamin to come near by their families, uh, the family of Matri was chosen. And Saul, the son of Kish, was chosen. But when they sought him, he could not be found. And therefore they inquired of the Lord further, Has the man come here yet? And the Lord answered, There he is, hidden among the equipment. So they ran and brought him from there, and when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? Now, there is no one like him among all the people. And so all the people shouted and said, Long live the king. And Samuel explained to the people the behavior of royalty and wrote it in a book and laid it up before the Lord. And Samuel sent all the people away, every man to his house. And Saul also went home to Gibeah, and valiant men went with him, whose heart 
God had touched. But some rebels said, how can this man save us? So they despised him and brought him no presents, but he held his peace. Let's pray together. Father God, as we come before you today as your people in this place, we thank you for this portion of your word. We thank you, God, that you speak to us through every portion of your word. And we pray, God, that today, as we read this story that you have given us, uh, that you would speak to us, Father, that you would draw us closer to you, that you would, Father, increase our faith in you, that we might follow you more closely, that we might trust you more. And we ask it in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Well, our game plan for today uh, is to start out by just walking together through this story that we've just read in, in chapter 10. And then we're going to read a little bit more uh, in chapter 11 and, and walk through that part of the story as well. And then at the very end today, we're going to uh, talk about what all of this has to do with our lives and what all of this has to do with the salvation that all of us uh, so desperately need. And so hang in there with me. We're moving somewhere, I promise you, with, with all of this. Uh, but you know, I think it is important that we start out by just hearing this story. Uh, because there is a reason why God has given us so much of His Word in the form of stories, like this story. Because stories have a way of teaching us truth that we won't hear any way, any way else. And so God has given us these stories for our own growth and our own edification. This story starts out in verse 17 with the namesake of the book, the prophet Samuel. And he calls all the people together at this town called Mitzpah. Mitzpah was the same city back in chapter 7 where a spiritual revival had taken place among Israel right before they won a battle against the Philistines. And so here at this same place, Samuel believed it was time to reveal to the people the king that God has chosen. But before he gets to that, before he gets to the main event, Samuel gives the people a little speech there in verses 18 and 19. And in verse 18, he reminds the people of all that the Lord had done for them, how the Lord had saved them time and time again, how he had saved them in Egypt, how he had saved them during the days of Joshua when they were moving into the promised land, how he saved them during the days of the judges. And, and, and yet in spite of all of that, look at what he says in verse 19. He said, but you have today rejected your God, who himself saved you from all your adversities and your tribulations. And you have said to him, no, set a king over us. Now, we might read that and we might think, you know, geez, Samuel, I mean, way to kick off a party, right? I mean, you know, you call everybody together for this big announcement and could you be more of a Debbie Downer than you're being right now? You know, he just, he starts everything off by basically kind of beating them up again, dropping the hammer again and telling everybody what big sinners they were for asking for a king. This is where we need to remember, though, that Samuel was God's prophet. His job was not so much to be cordial or to be invited to everyone's dinner parties, that his job was to give the people of God the Word of God, to tell the people what God had said. And so one more time, he says here the same thing he said back in chapter 8. He says, even though God has given you a king today, don't forget that the fact that you're asking for a king shows 
that your heart is really not where it is supposed to be, that you're really rejecting today God as your king by asking for a human king instead. And so the Lord had already given his word to them once, and now he gives the same word to them again. And you know, sometimes God does that in our lives as well. Sometimes God keeps giving us his word again and again and again until we finally hear it. And friend, what word is there in your life right now that the Lord has been saying to you recently? Maybe over and over again, he's been saying something to you. Every time you read the Word, every time you hear a message from the Word or a lesson from the Word, it's almost like no matter where you turn, it's the same message that just keeps hitting you in the face, something that God is, is saying to you. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's something about a relationship that, that, that isn't from the Lord that's in your life right now. And maybe it's something about a priority in your life that, that isn't in line with God's priorities. Maybe the Lord is telling you there, there's a person that you need to forgive or a person you need to ask to forgive you, and he just won't let it go. He just keeps coming back with his word time and, and time again. Friend, God is calling you today to hear it and to obey the word that he is, is giving to you. You know, after warning the people again about the condition of their heart, Samuel begins to do what God told him to do. He begins to give the people their king that they wanted. And so at the end of verse 19, Samuel asked all the people to come forward by their tribes and by their clans. Presumably, he selects the king through the process of casting lots. Now, that might seem strange to us. You might wonder, why is Samuel uh, choosing a king here by casting lots when Samuel already knows who the king is going to be, and he's already anointed that king in the chapter before. But, but this is where we need to remember that this was the first king of Israel, that they had never had a king before. And the people needed to know that it wasn't just Samuel that was picking this man, but that it was the Lord who had picked King Saul in order for them to accept him as their king. And Samuel knew that. And Samuel also knew, of course, that God was fully capable of making those lots fall. Out of all the men of Israel, on the name of Saul, the man that he had already chosen. Remember what it says in Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. You know, incidentally, the last time in the Bible that lots are used to make a decision is in Acts chapter 1 when they're choosing the 12th disciple who would replace Judas Iscariot. And that's the last time that we use lots in the Bible because what happens in the very next chapter in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit is given to the church. And we don't need lots anymore to figure out what God's will is. We have the Spirit of God to lead us and direct us. But they cast lots, and out of the 12 tribes of Israel, sure enough, the tribe of Benjamin is chosen. And then out of all the clans in the tribe of Benjamin, the clan of Matri is chosen. And out of all the men in the clan of Matri, the, the lot falls on one man's name. We already know his name, Saul, the son of Kish. And so in verse 21, they call out Saul's name, and nothing, right? They say, Bueller, 
Bueller, Saul, Saul, and, and, and he's, he's not there. I mean, this guy has gone AWOL, and the people are confused. They, they think maybe Samuel missed a name or, or, or something like that. So they ask the Lord, is the man here? And the Lord says, yeah, he's here. There he is, hiding in the equipment. You know, first of all, it just jumps out to me here that nobody knows where Saul is except for the Lord. The Lord sees him hiding there among the equipment, just as plain as day. And the truth is the same for us. The friend, the Lord sees you wherever you are today, as plain as day. He sees where you are. And I don't just mean he physically sees where you are. He spiritually sees where you are. He knows exactly where you are. He knows everything that's going on in your life. He sees it as plain as day. There's nothing in your life that is hidden from his sight. There's nowhere that we can go to hide from him. And that might be today a comforting thought for you, or it might be a scary thought for you, depending on where you are in your walk with the Lord right now. But either way, know today that God sees you and that he loves you. That his desire today is to turn your heart closer to him than it's been before. Now, when it comes to King Saul, the obvious question is, why was he hiding? And if you think about it, he was the only other person there other than Samuel that already knew how the lots were going to turn out. Right? He already knew that his name was going to be called, and so you would think that he would be waiting in the wings, right, right behind the red curtain, ready to come out onto the center stage right, and make his grand appearance on the national stage of Israel, but he doesn't do that. Instead, he's hiding out backstage in the equipment room. Now, some people will take the fact that Saul was hiding as a positive thing. Some people will take it negatively. Some people take it as a positive. They say that, you know, Saul was reflecting his humility here by hiding the way he was, by not being anxious to seize power. And then there are other people who take it negatively. Some say that, that really Saul is showing here a, a cowardice and a, and a reluctance and a hesitancy to do what God had called him to do. Honestly, I think that the truth is probably a little bit of both. But either way, as one person put it, this was not a very auspicious beginning for the man that they said was going to be their champion who was going to lead them out and fight their battles for them, that he's hiding among the supplies. You know, it's also kind of ironic here that they were trading God in as their king for this human king. And yet they're so dependent on God even still that they couldn't even have found their human king if God didn't show them where he was hiding. But in any event, they go and find their king and they drag him out from behind the bags and after they brush off the packing peanuts off of him and he stands up, he was at least a, a big boy. The text repeats for us this phrase that We've heard several times by now that Saul was a full head and shoulders taller than everybody else. They only came up to his shoulders. And so at this point, Samuel uh, does his best Don King impersonation. And in verse 24, he says, Do you see the one that the Lord has chosen, that there's no one like him in all of the people? I don't know if Samuel uh, had a smirk on his face as he said those words or not, or if he was holding back a laugh, but it almost seems like 
he was. As he says, he's a giant of a man. He's a physical specimen. And sure, we did, did just find him hiding in a pile of boxes backstage like a scared little child. But he's impressive, isn't he, everybody? And he holds up Saul and the people at this point were willing to overlook any nagging character flaws that might have already been revealed about their king because he looked the part. And they were determined to have a king. And so King Saul it was. And of course, sometimes we can be like that too. Maybe we're lonely in our life and we want somebody in our life so badly that we see the character flaws. And we see the flashing red lights about that person that we're considering. Maybe that person isn't even a Christian. Or if they are a Christian, they're not really sold out for the Lord, but we want to be with someone. We want to be married so badly that we ignore all of that and we just plow on ahead anyway because the person looks the part. That's what Israel did here. They plowed ahead. And in verse 24, the people shouted something that people have been shouting throughout human history ever since. Long live the king. Earlier in chapter 8, Samuel had warned the people about how a king could act and how sometimes a king would act. But here, in verse 25, he explains to them how a king should act. And most likely, he repeats for them some of the words that are found in the law. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, about how a king of Israel should behave. If we had time, we'd go to that text. But the idea that Samuel was driving home to the people and to Saul was that Saul, as king, was not over the law, but rather that the law of God was over King Saul. And that only the king and the people would be blessed if they listened and obeyed what God had told them to do. As the story goes on, we'll find that that proves a difficult thing for King Saul to consistently follow. At the end of verse 25, Samuel sends everyone home, and the final two verses of chapter 10 tell us that there were some people that God touched their hearts, and they followed King Saul. They were ready to fight with him. But then verse 27 tells us that some people didn't like the idea of Saul being the king, and they didn't hide their dislike of King Saul. They scorned him. They despised him. They didn't bring him a customary present like everyone else did. Everybody else brought a silver tea set or a crock pot or a, a set of steak knives. But, but these people brought nothing. And they said, how can this man save us? But then the text says there, the last words of chapter 10, but he held his peace. This is one of the first decisions that King Saul makes, and it's a good one. He starts out well here. Maybe he was tempted to flex his kingly muscles a bit and to take his valiant men with him and to go put a beat down on these guys that would not follow him or give him in a presence. But he didn't do that. He held his peace. He showed them mercy. And he would show them mercy again in chapter 11. Speaking of chapter 11, let's read it together, starting in verse 1, because the newly minted King Saul is about to get his first major test. Chapter 11, verse 1. Then Nahash, the Ammonite, came up and encamped against Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a covenant with us, and we will serve you. And Nahash, the Ammonite, answered them, On this condition I will make a covenant with you, that I may put out all your right eyes and bring reproach on all Israel. 
And then the elders of Jabesh said to him, Hold off for seven days that we may send messengers to all the territory of Israel, and then if there's no one to save us, we will come out to you. So the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and told the news in the hearing of the people. And all the people lifted up their voices and wept. Now there was Saul coming behind the herd from the field. And Saul said, What troubles the people that they weep? And they told him the words of the men of Jabesh. And then the Spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard this news, and his anger was greatly aroused. So he took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hands of messengers, saying, Whoever does not go out with Saul and Samuel to battle, so it shall be done to his oxen. And the fear of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out with one consent. When he numbered them in Bezek, the children of Israel were 300,000, the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who came, Thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have help. Then the messengers came and reported it to the men of Jabesh, and they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will come out to you, and you may do with us whatever seems good to you. And so it was on the next day that Saul put the people in three companies. They came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and killed Ammonites until the heat of the day. And it happened that those who survived were scattered, that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is he who said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day. For today the Lord has accomplished salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. And there they made sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. So when Saul sent everyone home that day from Mitzpah, Saul went home also. And we might think that he moved into a palace, but he did not. He actually just went back to his everyday life. He went back to farming and he waited on an opportunity to lead the people. And it didn't take long for that opportunity to present itself. Because in verse 1, this man named Nahash, his name, by the way, means snake. And it was a fitting name for this man. And Nahash and his people, the Ammonites, who were the enemies of Israel, came and encamped against this Israelite city called Jabesh-Gilead. They were getting ready to go to war with this city. Now, Jabesh-Gilead was on the east side of the Jordan River, which means it was kind of separated from most of the tribes of Israel that lived on the west side of the river. So they were very vulnerable to attack. And uh, apparently, as Jabesh-Gilead looked at the Ammonites, they realized pretty quickly that we don't stand a chance against them. And so they offered to make terms with them, terms of surrender. And basically, they said, you know, if you just won't kill us, Uh, then we'll just become your slaves. That's the idea. But Nahash said, all right, you want to make a covenant with us? You want to surrender to us? That's fine, but we're going to gouge out all of your right eyes. That's going to be a part of the covenant. Of course, it's a gruesome and inhumane practice, but I think his purpose in this was at least twofold. First of all, he wanted to make all the men only have one eye so that they'd be unable to fight in battle or ever rebel against him because it's hard to hit the broad side of a barn when you have no depth perception and you can't shoot at anything. But then secondly, like it says in verse 2, Nahash wanted to bring disgrace upon Israel. He wanted to shame Israel by making this entire Israelite city like a bunch of 
pirates like One-Eyed Willie. That is his purpose. And so it's not surprising when the people of Jabesh-Gilead hear this proposal and they say, huh, you know, okay, that, that sounds fun, uh, but let's, let's not, you know, rush into anything. Let's, let's hold off if we can. Let's, let's take about seven days and, and think this over and let's see if anybody will come to our rescue in the next seven days. And if not, then you can go ahead with the whole eye-gouging thing. You can gouge away. And we're not sure why uh, this king, Nahash, allows them to take this seven-day reprieve. Maybe he just enjoyed watching them squirm. And maybe he was so confident that he thought no help is going to come for them anyway, and so it's not going to matter. So he lets them do it. So they send out messengers, and some of the messengers come to Saul's city of Gibeah, and we won't go into the history here, but there's a strong connection between the town of Gibeah and the town of Jabesh-Gilead. There was a lot of intermarriage that went on there, and you can read about it in the book of Judges. But it's because of this connection between the families in these two cities that when they hear the news that Jabesh-Gilead is about to be attacked, it says in the text that they're weeping and they're wailing. They love these people. They had family members in this city. And so about that time, Saul comes in from his work in the field, and he hears the weeping and the wailing, and he asks what's going on, and they told him. And then verse 6 is a key verse in this story. It says, The Spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard this news, and his anger was greatly aroused. Literally, the word says that the Spirit of God rushed upon King Saul. There's only one other man in the Bible that we read this about, that the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and that's Samuel or Samson in the book of Judges. Three times this same expression is used, that the Spirit of God rushed upon Samson. And that's really how Saul is being described here in the early going, that he's like a Samson 2.0, right? That the Spirit of God's coming upon him. He's like a super judge, a super Samson. And so uh, God's Spirit here, notice, really fills Samson with a holy anger, a holy rage that moves him to act on behalf of God's people. And so he takes a yoke of oxen and he begins to hack it in pieces and then he FedExes pieces of the oxen all over Israel. And this really, I think, is being consciously done by Saul following the example that we read about in the latter chapters of the book of Judges where a similar hacking and shipping mechanism was used, but the details of that story are too gruesome to really even discuss. But the idea here behind the pieces of this oxen being sent out is, is a warning, right? He's saying, if you don't come to fight with us, this is what's going to happen to your oxen. And the Lord uses that, and the Lord uh, instills his fear upon the people. And so they come out to join their new king, says they come out as one man. They're united behind their king in this battle. The battle plan is very simple. Uh, he divides his army within three different battalions, and they come in the early morning hours. They march all night, and they attack pre-dawn between two and six in the morning, and they catch the Ammonites by surprise. They totally rout the enemy, and it was a great victory. And after the battle was over, all of the people now are behind King Saul. And so some of them think it's time now to go and to get those guys that we talked about earlier that weren't willing to follow King Saul and weren't willing to give him any presents. And they said, where are those people? We need to drag them out here. We need to put them to death because we all need to be behind 
King Saul. And then in verse 13, really this is the high point of the entire reign of King Saul. This is the best thing that ever comes out of his mouth. He says, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has accomplished salvation in Israel. Now I say this as a high point, first of all, because again, he shows mercy instead of revenge. But also it's a high point because while the people are wanting to praise him and while the people are wanting to make much of him, he redirects their praise to the Lord. And and friend, let me ask you that. When God gives you success, when he gives you success maybe in, in, in work or maybe in school or maybe in athletics or in any other area of life and people are wanting to make much of you, do you receive that praise for yourself or do you do like Saul does here? Do you redirect it to the Lord? Do you say the Lord is the one who has done all of this? It seems clear that Samuel is pleased with King Saul so far. He's passed his first test. And so in verse 14, Samuel says to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. And Gilgal was a special place. It was the first place that the children of Israel stepped foot after they crossed the Jordan River with Joshua. The first place in the promised land that they came to, where they set up the memorial stones to remember what God had done. And so here at this special, historical, sacred site, Samuel calls the people together to renew the kingdom. And at this point, of course, he's already been made king on one occasion, but this is a time when all of the people come together to make him king, to get behind him. There was peace between the people. And verse 15 says there was also great joy among the people as well. Joy not only because they'd won the victory, but joy because they were unified under their new king. Now, we know that that peace and joy that they felt on this day would not last for long. In fact, in the next few weeks, we'll see that joy begin to slip away. But for now, the people of God are happy with their king, their king who had on this day saved God's people. With the time that we have left, you know, in the salvation that King Saul brought to God's people, I want us to see very quickly four lessons that we can learn about our own salvation. And here's lesson number one. We have enemies that we can't defeat on our own. We have enemies that we can't defeat on our own. Certainly this was true for God's people. When Nahash and the Ammonites came and surrounded the people of Jabesh-Gilead, it didn't take them long to do the math, did it? As they looked at the enemy and as they looked at themselves, they realized they had no chance. And so they immediately offered terms of surrender. And then they asked if they could take seven days to call for help. They knew they would not survive this enemy if a Savior did not come to rescue them. Of course, that's true for us today on multiple levels. And first off, spiritually speaking, before we come to know the Lord, we are very much like the people of Jabesh Gilead, aren't we? We're surrounded by the enemies of sin, by the enemy of death, by the enemy of Satan who has a grip on our lives. And the first step in coming to Jesus is just to look at our enemies and do the math. 
and to realize that we don't stand a chance against these enemies on our own. We have to realize that no matter how strong that we might think we are, that we can't take care of these enemies on our own. That we're spiritually dead and on our own we can't give ourselves spiritual life. We need a Savior to give us spiritual life. That we have a sin problem between us and God, and it's a stain that we can't wash away, that we need a Savior to come and to wash that stain away from us. We need to realize that Satan has a hold over our life, and on our own, we can't pry his fingers away from our life and escape his clutches. We need a Savior who defeated Satan on the cross and rose again on the third day. And so, Christian, thank your God today. That when you and I were in Jabesh Gilead, when we were surrounded by enemies that were way too big for us, that God sent us a Savior who came to our rescue and who defeated all of our enemies for us. Of course, even after we become a Christian, we need to keep remembering this lesson as well. Because we still have enemies that we can't defeat on our own. While Jesus defeated Satan at the cross, his final judgment has not come yet. And First Peter says that he is like a lion, that he is even right now seeking people to devour. That he is on the attack and on our own, in our own flesh, that we are powerless to withstand his attack. We will fall for his schemes and his traps every single time. But we also know that if we turn to Christ, if we depend on him, if we're filled with his spirit, And we don't need to fear because he that is in us is greater than he that is in the world. You know, we need to remember this lesson as a church as well. Because when it comes to our task of carrying the gospel to this community of Melbourne and Palm Bay that's right around us, we need to realize that we're up against enemies that are too big for us to defeat on our own. The Bible says that Satan has blinded the eyes of our neighbors who don't know Christ and We don't have the power to take the blinders off their eyes, do we? We don't have that power. And and so while we can invite people, while we can put on a great spring up event, and while we can have the best Easter services that we can have, we need to understand and remember that apart from God's Spirit's power, we are powerless to take the blinders off anyone's eyes. And so even today, while we hand you yard signs and while we give you invite cards to to invite people and to reach out to people, I, I need us to remember that we are not primarily advertisers, but we're soldiers in a spiritual war. And we can't defeat the enemies that we are up against on our own. And that's why we need to pray more than anything else. And ask the Lord to be moving in these weeks in great power here in Melbourne. That he would take our feeble efforts and that he would endue them with power to make an eternal difference in the lives of people that we know and that we love. So we've said we need a Savior, that we have enemies we can't defeat on our own. Here's lesson number two. The Savior we need is a Spirit-anointed king. And this almost goes without saying, but I think it's so neat to see it here in our text because when the messengers come to Saul's town and they are crying out for help because of their enemies and Saul hears about it, again, the Spirit of God rushes upon Saul like a freight train. 
And God's Spirit anoints him and gives him the strength to rescue God's people. So hear this. Israel's Spirit-anointed king is the one who saves them. And the same is true for us. Israel's Spirit-anointed king is the one who saves us. Because many years after King Saul had come and gone, another king of Israel was born. And when he was ready to start his public ministry and he was baptized, the Bible tells us that the Spirit of God came down and descended upon him like a dove. And then in Luke chapter 4, he walks into the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth and they hand him the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And he reads these words to the people, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then he sat down and he said, those words that I just read have just been fulfilled in your presence. Jesus is our spirit anointed king. And the Spirit of God would lead the Son of God every step of his earthly ministry all the way up a hill called Calvary to the point where he died for us at the cross. Friend, do you know this Spirit-anointed King, Jesus, in a personal way? Have you come to trust him? Have you surrendered your entire life to this King, accepted what he did in your life? Because here's the third lesson about our salvation. It's such a beautiful truth. The Lord has already accomplished our salvation. Back in 1 Samuel 11, verse 13, we already read this statement that King Saul made. I said it was the high point of his entire reign as king. But remember what he said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has accomplished salvation in Israel. I love that. He was giving the glory to God. He was saying, God is the one who has accomplished our salvation. And if you know Jesus today, did you know you can say the exact same words that Saul said 3,000 years ago? You can say, the Lord has accomplished my salvation today. Today the Lord has done it. Because when Jesus died on the cross, the very last word that he said was one word in Aramaic, the word tetelestai, which in English means what? It is finished, right? That he paid for our sin debt in full. He didn't pay part of it. He paid all of it. And now there's nothing left to do. There's nothing left to pay. But I'm convinced that there are some people and maybe even some of you in this room that you're still trying to pay for something that Jesus has already paid for. And you're trying to pay for it little by little by trying to be good enough, by trying to be religious enough, because you think that little by little you can kind of chip away at your debt and maybe one day you'll get there and maybe one day God will accept you if you do enough. But friend, that's not how salvation works. We're not going to chip away at what we owe God because what we owe God is an infinite debt that we can never pay back in a million lifetimes. But the good news is we don't have to chip away at it because Jesus Christ has already taken care of it. And he's already wiped it away in full. And now there's nothing left for us to do but to open up our hands and receive the grace of God. I love what Saul says here about not a man will be put to death today because the Lord has accomplished salvation. Here's the truth, 
for us. Not one of us needs to be put to death today because one man already was put to death in our place. We deserve to die because of our sin, but because Jesus was put to death for us, not one man, not one woman in this room, not one boy, not one girl in this room needs to be put to death if we would simply turn to Jesus, the one who already was put to death, the one who already paid our debt and rose again. Here's the final lesson about our salvation we need to see in this story before we're through. The king always brings a division and forces each of us to make a choice. Do you remember back at the end of chapter 10, after they found Saul hiding in the baggage, and Samuel presents him to the people, that the people shout, long live the king. And God touched some of their hearts, and some of the people followed Saul. But then in verse 27, It says there were some people, some rebels, they're called here, who say, how can this man save us? And they wouldn't follow him. You remember that? They wouldn't bring him any any gifts, any presents. So even for King Saul, the coming of the king made a clear division. Some people were with him and some people were against him. And church is no different with King Jesus than it was with King Saul. The king always brings a division. The king always forces us to make a choice. We have to choose where we're going to stand. Are we going to go with him? Is the Lord going to touch our hearts and we're going to follow him? Or are we going to rebel against him and do our own thing? And really, according to the Bible, there is no middle ground at all. Because at the end of the day, watch Watch this, at the end of the day, every one of us will either say, long live the king to Jesus, or we'll say what they said, how can this man save us? Maybe up until now, that has been your attitude. How can this man save me? You've heard about Jesus, but maybe you've thought, you know, what does he have to do with me? He lived 2,000 years ago. What does he have to do with my life? What does he have to do with my marriage? What does he have to do with my future? How can this man who lived so long ago save me? But today, you've maybe realized for the first time in your life that you need saving. That there is something between you and God. That there is a sin problem between you and God that you can't fix, that you can't take away. And maybe you've heard today for the first time And that's why Jesus came. And that's why your king died for you on the cross, to pay for your sin. And now, friend, you have to make a choice. What what will you choose? What will you do? Are you ready to bow your knee to Jesus today and say, He's my Lord and He's my King. He's my Savior and He's my friend and I want to follow Him from this day on. I want to ask you to stand. And if that's you, if God has has touched your heart even today, and you're ready to come and surrender to Him, I want to invite you to come right now. I know you might be nervous about that. How can I come forward in front of a room of all these people? Listen, everyone in this room will be cheering for you today if you come to make that decision to trust in Christ. Because everyone in this room who knows Jesus knows the difference that He has made in their life. And they're going to be excited for you 
People will let you out. People will cheer for you today as you as you come. And so I want to invite you. Maybe there's just one in this room that knows. I, I don't know where I stand with Jesus, but I want to know him. I want to know for sure that I know the King. Come right now. I'll be here. There's other pastors who are ready to speak with you right now. You come as we sing. 